In the fall of 1940, bodies lay dead on the streets of London, smoke twirling up, gasps of shock and horror in the air, and search parties rummaging for the bodies of people's loved ones. The night before, sirens alerted the people that bombs were about to be dropped. And yet again, their lives would be altered and their stability stolen away by the enemy. Parents hurriedly gather their children and run like there is no tomorrow for many. There would not be. In bunkers, shelters, and on subway platforms, hundreds of Londoners slept tightly side by side. But their spirits are not broken, and they refuse to surrender. They are strengthened by important footsteps that step over the rubble, come close to them, speak to them, touch them, make plans for them, and reassures them that they'd much rather die a free nation than to live as an enslaved one. I'd like to say good morning to everyone. My name is B. Chris Simpson. I'm from the Holmes Road Church of Christ in Memphis, Tennessee. I've been here all weekend, and I regret that this is the last service. It was uh, three uh, services in all, and uh, just amazing. Yesterday was amazing. Today was amazing. I'm thankful to the leadership for having me. We have stayed with the Manleys, a very beautiful people, had a great conversation, had many great conversations. He is very talkative and very insightful. I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful very much so for Robbie, who is a friend, a brother to me, a uh, very impactful youth minister, very funny, very spiritual. And I said this of uh, just this morning in the first service, thankful for Steve as well. He uh, will one day die and continue to lead songs in heaven. And so I'm thankful for all of that, and I'm thankful for all of you for coming as well. As you know, um, your serve has been the... Uh, title of our youth rally, and so we're going to still keep in that same genre. I've been given 20 to 25 minutes for the first service. So with that being said, when you, when you come to the second service, there really are no rules. So I will, I will attempt to stay within that 25-minute range, but it ain't like y'all got somewhere to be. So we'll be in Luke chapter 7 today, beginning at verse number 18 and ending at verse 22. The definition of hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for something to happen. Hope, a feeling of expectation and a desire for something to happen will be coming from Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse number 18 and ending at verse number 22. Today we'll have only two areas of analysis. The first thing we're going to talk about is the looking, and then second, the giving. First, the looking and then the giving. I grew up in uh, the inner city, a place where uh, the social workers call uh, the inner city. Uh, and so we had very interesting characters at my school. Whenever I was in elementary school, we had two math teachers, and we literally thought that they were brothers because they were so similar. I had one in class. And my brother had the other. The one that I had in class was Mr. Perry. This was uh, way back in the day whenever your teacher was like your parent. I mean, we had about 25 students in this classroom. And whatever happened in the classroom was always for training purposes because whenever we left the classroom, he wasn't just our teacher. He was also our what? He was our daddy. 
Okay, so whenever we leave the classroom, he had very specific rules. He had very specific ways of explaining himself. And so then he said, you walk in a single file line. You do not speak in the hallways. You remain quiet in the hallways. I mean, you would see another line approaching you on the opposite side of the hallway walking towards you. And you would want to say hello to your friends, but you knew that that would be big trouble. You want to be uh, fellowshipping, but you know that that would be big trouble. Because if anything was to happen in the hallways, if anything was to happen there in the hallway, you was going to get it when we got back to the classroom. He would give us this look, and this look essentially was, wait till we get back to the classroom. <laughs> we, uh, we had teachers who had very uh, interesting desks. They had things on their desks. They had pencils on their desks, pens on their desks, papers on their desks, curriculums on their desks, and they had paddles on their desks. It's important to recognize that back in the day that I was coming from, which was but which was back in the day, but at the very end of what back in the day means. I was at the very end of what back in the day, that back in the day era. And so we would get paddled. And so whenever something happened in the hallway, we had these kind of teachers. He'd walk us back. We would stand, single file, at the door. He'd take his key out, open the door, and he would go to his desk and he would get his paddle. He would come back, and then when we were in the hallway, whenever things were happening, he was counting up the licks. He would say, okay, that's one. We do something else. Somebody else talking. Somebody else get out of line. Somebody else get out of line. Three. And so then when we were standing outside that door, he would just, oh, okay, y'all can go in now. And he stopped us. Whop. He stopped us. Whop, whop. He stopped us. Whop, whop, whop. Each person. Whop, whop, whop. Next. Whop, whop, whop. Next. Whop, whop, whop. And you think of today, uh, a kid, uh, well, well, there's no way this is legal. I mean, this is illegal somewhere. Not then. Whop, whop, whop. Pop, pop. We're going in. These are the types of teachers that we had. Mr. Perry was very similar to Mr. Hawkins because they were all hard math teachers. I was close with Mr. Hawkins as well, though I didn't have him in class. I was a delinquent student. Um, and so in every uh, principal's office, every administrator's office, every dean's office, every security officer's office, they had their own desk, they had their own chair, they had their own nameplate, and then they had another chair in the corner with my name on it. I mean, that's the type of student that I was. I was that student always in the office. They had my mother's uh, on speed dial, my father on speed dial, my granddaddy on speed dial, my grandmother on speed dial. And so because I was one of those bad students, uh, teachers who like bad students, those hard teachers, they love me. Because the teachers who are very strict, they actually got into education so that they could break people like me. And so then they have a penchant for it. And so then I would talk to Mr. Hawkins and I would, you know, just be there with him and, and chat it up and, uh, and, and, and see about him and he would see about me. And I remember once asking him in my uh, nine or ten year old, very uh, sophisticated way, you know. Ms. Hawkins, you adopted Anthony? You know, Ms. Hawkins, he had a son, and his name was Anthony, and, and Anthony was older than we were. He was uh, uh, a student at Pearl C. Anderson uh, Middle School, and so then he would come, you know, they got out about 15 minutes before we did, and so then he would walk to the school, and all of us would be like, oh my goodness, I think that's Mr. Hawkins' son. Oh my goodness. Wow, he's an eighth grader, you know, and so he would come through the hallways, and he must have been uh, a giant walking through the hallways. I look back, and he was probably just about this high off the ground. At any rate, he was a giant to us, and so then I remember hearing that Anthony was adopted, and at the time, I didn't even know what that meant. I mean, I'm young. I don't know what that means. But then, after they broke it down from they essentially said, oh, that means Mr. Hawkins ain't his real daddy. I wanted to know more about this. 
of course, me and my nine and ten-year-old mind, I just am chilling here, talking to my teacher in my very professional and sophisticated way. Ms. Hawkins, you adopted Anthony. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, what? how did it happen? What does that even mean? Ms. Hawkins, he told me, he said, well, I knew Anthony the same way I know you. He would come to my class and we'd talk. And he'd spend time with me. Anthony came from a broken home. He didn't really have good parents. He would spend time with me. He said, and so then one day as I was here with him, we were just talking, just like you and I are talking now. He said, uh, Mr. Hawkins, I want you to be my dad. Of course, Mr. Hawkins, you know, he's got this really big, deep voice like this. I mean, and everything was booming, you know. And Mr. Hawkins telling me their stories. And so I looked at him and I said, why do you want me to be your daddy? Do you know what that means? Do you even know what it means for me to be your daddy? What do you want out of me when you say you want me to be your daddy? And then he says, Anthony says, well, I mean, coming from this broken home, you know, he says, well, I want, uh, I want you to love me. And the next thing out of his mouth is very interesting. He says, and I want you to, to discipline me. So then Ms. Hawkins looked at me and he said, and from that moment on, I knew that he was my son. Join me here in Luke chapter 7. As we turn to Luke chapter 7, we're going to look at the atmosphere that Jesus was born into. When Jesus was born, there was upheaval on every level. There was theological upheaval. There were debates on the resurrection at that time. There were debates on divorce and the observance of the law. There was theological upheaval. Not only that, but there was also political upheaval. Uh, Judea and Rome uh, were in a face-off together where the Roman government held uh, Judea down and would tax them incessantly. There was political upheaval. There were also political factions even in the uh, religious realm. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the uh, zealots, you had the community at Qumran, there was all type of political upheaval. There was corruption in the temple. There were people misusing the money, people misusing their authority, and there was 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, and this broken silence would be by John. Whenever John the Baptist would break that silence, he would speak out into that 400 year of no prophecy, and he would say, make straight the paths for the Messiah is coming. Whenever he would minister and whenever he would baptize in preparation for this Messiah, he would send his disciples to Jesus after hearing what he's been doing, and he would send his disciples with a very specific question, asking Jesus, is, is he the one who is to come? Here in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. This is what the Bible says. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Key concept number one, people are looking. Key concept number one, People are looking. We very often think that in the world that we live in, because of what we see on television, because of how we interpret people in our jobs, and because of all of the bad people we meet, we just assume that people are not looking anymore. And that's why we don't serve, because we think that our, our service will go unnoticed. We think that our service will be for naught, but people are looking. We assume that they're not. We assume that everyone is evil, but that is not the case. People are in need. 
people are broken and people are looking. Anthony was looking. You have this small boy and he is looking for something. We think that they're not looking, but they are in fact looking. Whenever Jesus is sitting here and he's doing all of these things and he's making this name for himself because of the miraculous things that are happening under his ministry, whenever John sends his disciples, they say, we are looking for someone. Are you the one we're looking for, or should we look for someone else? People are looking. What I'm trying to say is that that chronically poor woman, she's looking. The children with those sagging pants, they're looking. The homeless man on the corner, he's looking. The dropout with low wages, he's looking. The young, promiscuous woman, she's looking. The fatherless daughter, she's looking. The fatherless son, he's looking. The sexually abused child, they're looking. John's disciples said, we are looking for someone. And if you are that someone, we rejoice that we found you. If you are not that someone, then we will go on and look for someone else. And the people in our life, the people in our job, the people in our family, the people with whom we come into contact with in the parking lots of supermarkets, these people, they are looking. And when they come to us, when they approach us, they are approaching us as Christians with the same question that the disciples of John approached Jesus. Are you the one we are looking for? Should we look for someone else? And that's a question that we have to answer. Are we the somebody that can help? Are we the someone who can bring hope? Are we the someone that can end the search that these people have? Or when they come upon us, are we no help at all? Or when they come upon us, have they the need to keep on looking? Key concept number one, people are looking. In the fall of 1940, bodies lay dead on the streets of London. Smoke twirling up, gasps of shock and horror in the air in search parties, rummaging for the bodies of people's loved ones. The night before, sirens alerted the people that bombs were about to be dropped. And yet again, their lives would be altered in their stability, stolen away by the enemy. Parents hurriedly gather their children and run like there is no tomorrow. For many, there would not be. In bunkers, shelters, and on subway platforms, hundreds of Londoners slept tightly side by side. But their spirits are not broken and they refuse to surrender. They are strengthened by important footsteps that step over the rubble, come close to them, speak to them, touch them, make plans for them, and reassures them that they'd much rather die a free nation than to live as an enslaved one. The military is a very interesting and powerful regime. Some 30 of our 43 presidents served in the army, 24 of them during times of war. Less than 28% of Americans between the ages of 17 to 23 are even qualified for military service. That's only about one out of every four men. World War II killed some 405,399 soldiers. That is slightly more than the population of Tulsa, but less than the population of Minneapolis. That's to say that in World War II alone, the population of Minneapolis was killed. Soldiers are very interesting and important figures. I travel quite a bit, and whenever I'm in the airport, I normally uh, sleep. And as I told the first service, whenever I'm in the airport, whenever I am sitting here in this plane, we are still in the driveway. We are still on the pavement. We haven't even started to take off yet. We're not even rolling, and I'm already asleep. I'm saying that the lady, the, 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 the flight attendants hadn't even started their thing yet, and I'm already asleep. That's just me. I'm a sleeper. 
whenever I am in between naps, I do tend to look up and look around and people watch. So here I am in the airport and whatever airport it was, I cannot remember, but I'm here at this airport and I'm just sitting. To my right, there's an escalator. The airport is full of people. On this escalator, there are many people. A mother with her toddler son, who must be between the ages of two and three, is on this escalator. And it happened in a split second. It was nothing anyone saw coming. We were all shocked, and it must have been 0.5 seconds that this whole scene took place. Whenever that little boy fell backwards on an escalator going up, whenever he falls back, he becomes stuck by something, whether it was his garment or whether it was his shoestring, whatever got caught, it was caught underneath the step on that thing that reels the escalator upward. And so there were screams. There were screams of all of the people on the escalator. There were screams of the mother above all of their screams to the top of her lungs, screaming for her baby. It was something in addition to the screams that I heard sitting here. As all of this is happening in this split second, the boy is making a sound. Boom, 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 upward in the escalator. When you hear this sound, boom, 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 you realize that this boy is caught either on his garment or by his shoestring that's caught up underneath, hooked on that thing that makes the escalator go upward. And it's his head that is banging clean against the glass that lines either side of the escalator. Boom, boom, boom. You can hear the screams. We don't know what to do. Everyone is just shocked. And you can hear the head of the boy on the glass. Boom, boom, boom. I'm looking here, and I'm in shock. It's all happening so fast. It must be literally just a split second in this boy caught here with his garment or his shoestring wrapped around this thing that's making the escalator go upward, his head on the glass. Boom, boom, boom. Somebody should be doing something, but the only thing you can do up front is just scream. Boom, boom, boom. And in between this young boy going up, being hurt, boom, 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 up the escalator. You see, out of the corner of my eye, some ten gates down, camouflage, moving so swiftly like a flash. It was a soldier. He runs like the flash through the stunned crowd. And in this split second, he's up the escalator. He scooped up the boy like a loaf of bread, and he kept on running to safety. He did not even have time to pause to talk to the mother. By this time, the boy had been hurt. He scooped him, and he just kept running. Something interesting about soldiers. Join me here in Luke chapter 7. Let's pick up now reading at verse 22. The Bible says, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended at me. Key concept number two, giving hope requires work. Giving hope requires work. We've already decided that people are looking. People are looking. They are in need. They are broken. They have need. They are looking. They are searching. But if we are to give them 
what they need. It's going to take work if we are to give them the hope that these people require, the hope that the broken people around us need. It's going to take work when proving if he was the hope of the nation, when proving if Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. He did not talk about it. He was about it. He said, I want you to go and tell John not what I've said, but I want you to go and tell John what I've done. Key concept number two. Giving hope requires work. We trust soldiers because of their work ethic. We trust soldiers to keep us safe in times of war. We believe that our borders are being protected, that when they risk their lives, it makes us more brave. It's because of the work of a soldier. That's what happened when he came twisting some ten gates down to work, to do something, to be in action when everyone else is just stunned. He's moving when everyone else can only just look on in shock. He is acting. If we want to bring people hope, it's going to take action in the church. We've got to act. We've got to do something. And the problem is in churches, we become lazy. We become weak. We become decadent and we do not want to act. We have a conundrum as Americans because as Americans, we are highly individualistic. And church, by definition, is collective. Church, by definition, is communal. But we don't care to be communal. We don't care to be collective. We prefer to just worry about me. Well, if it affects me good, I do it. If I got to give up too much time, I do it. You see? But in order to do church, in order to be righteous according to the purpose that we were called to, we've got to be communal. We've got to work and we have to do it together. What else does it mean when he says that the body is made up of all these moving parts and they move together to accomplish hope? They accomplish hope for our friends, hope for our family, hope for the broken, hope for our community. Ephesians 2 says that we were made for good works. He says you were created so that you could do good work. And here we are as a church just sitting around expecting two people out of the whole auditorium full to do most of the work. And we hear the ministry call. We hear all the things that are needed. And we are like consumers. We say, well, I don't put Burger King down. But I add them ass to hold my onions and they keep giving me onions. I'm putting them down. I ain't going to patronize them people. We say, well, I don't put Sears down. I'm going to start going to Lowe's. See, because I don't like their customer service, and that's how we treat the Lord's church. We've all become consumers. We just sit here, give our money, and either like it or don't like it and just complain. Well, I don't know about that because I, huh, look, huh, well, see, I ain't going to patronize these people. But I think that the church is more than a company, and I think that we as Christians are more than consumers. Key concept number two, if we want to give hope and bring hope to people, it's going to take some work. Hope requires work. We're going to have to put on a smile when we much rather frown. We're going to have to give a little more money. We're going to have to lose some sleep. We're going to have to make some hard decisions. Now, what I'm saying is that hope requires work. We're going to have to come into contact with the lonely. We're going to have to serve the ungrateful. We're going to have to cancel some appointments. We're going to have to say yes when we really feel like saying no. What I'm saying is that hope requires some work. We're going to have to cook a little more. We're going to have to clean a little more. We're going to have to get out of our comfort zone. We're going to have to show up. We have to tell the truth. We have to pray more. We're going to have to fast for once in our lives. We're going to have to read the Bible and study. We're going to have to get dirty. We're going to have to get involved. We're going to have to sweat. We're going to have to come to more ministry meetings. You have to say yes. You have to get out of your selfishness and do something for the Lord's kingdom. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to work. Jesus says, my work speaks for itself. If you think that I am the Messiah, don't take my word for it. Go back and tell John this. He says that the blind receive their sight. 
the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are being raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Key concept number two. Hope requires work. From September 1940 to May 1941, there were major aerial raids throughout the United Kingdom. The Blitz, short for the German word Blitzkrieg, meaning lightning war, was a period of sustained strategic bombing of the United Kingdom during World War II. Under the Nazi regime of Adolf Hitler, within these seven months, London would be bombed 71 times by the Luftwaffe, which is Germany's air force. Over 100 tons of high explosives were to be dropped during this time. Beginning on September 7th, Luftwaffe would bomb London for 57 consecutive nights during this time. One million London homes were destroyed or damaged, and some 40,000 people were killed. But London astonished the world with their impenetrable positivity and their heart to never surrender to Hitler. This is said to have been due largely to the encouragement and the influence of their then prime minister, a man by the name of Sir Winston Churchill, a military man, a noted politician, an author, and an orator. He was firm and never surrendering. He said, we will never surrender. He said, we will never surrender. Sitting there behind his big mahogany desk, in his cush leather seat, in his beautiful office there on 10 Downing Street, which is the seat of his government, he would come up out of that chair. He would circle out from around the desk. He would step out of that door on 10 Downing Street. He would descend the port steps from 10 Downing Street, and every single night that they bombed London, he would go out, stepping over the rubble, and he would talk to the people. He would meet the people. Can you imagine that you, scary to get your children into some cardboard box, hoping that the night will pass and you wake up alive? Could you imagine getting up the next day after being stacked spoon style? on the platform of the subway underground to rise up and to go to work like nothing happened. Could you imagine trying to go to work, getting to the building you work in, and the whole thing is leveled. It's just a little bitty sign there stuck in the ground saying, we're working two buildings down. Could you imagine what that looks like? But could you also imagine the leader? Could you imagine the leader that we have descending from his high place in government and coming down to talk to the people? Winston Churchill said, it's going to be all right. We will not surrender. You need to keep your head up. We're making plans. He said to Parliament, we're working for you. My people, we're making plans for you. This will not last forever. We're doing something for you. What I'm saying is that as Christians, we have to come out of our comfort zone and we have to descend because that's what he did. But most importantly, that is what Jesus did. Jesus could have stayed up in heaven. He could have stayed there in his large, comfortable, leather executive's chair. He could have stayed there behind his big, beautiful mahogany desk. But you know that's not what happened. What Jesus did is he got up out of the leather seat. He rounded that beautiful mahogany desk, and he descended from 10 Downing Street here so that he could come near you, so that he could come near me. What I'm saying is we've got to descend from our comfort zones. If you want to bring hope, you've got to come down. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. We have to get out of our comfort zone. We have to work because hope is going to take work. What I'm saying is get out of 10 Downing Street and descend. You have to get up out of the comfort of that chair. You have to come out of that Desk, you have to come down. We want to stay here in our fancy homes and our beautiful cars and these beautiful clothes that we have, and you prefer to stay behind that desk. But Jesus didn't do that, and because of that, we have hope. 
You're going to have to come out of that desk and you're going to have to descend from 10 Downing Street and go to the hurting and go to the unpopular and go to all of those people who need that help. Only then will we bring hope to those around us. Someone here today needs hope. You can stay right where you are and ask for hope. If you've not given hope, then you can stay right where you are and say, you know what? I ain't been no Christian and I need to give people more hope. If you need to come down on these aisles and speak to the others, do that. Whatever you need to do, whatever work you need to do. If you, you, know, you may say, I haven't done anything for this church. I just sit here like a bump on an executive log. You say that to yourself, and you repent right there where you are. We all need to do it. I'm a preacher, and I need to do it. My hope is that we can do it so that people can have hope in the fall of 1940. Bodies lay dead on the streets of London, smoke twirling up, gasps of shock and horror in the air and search parties rummaging for the bodies of people's loved ones. The night before, sirens alerted the people that bombs were about to be dropped. And yet again, their loved ones would be all, their lives would be altered and their stability stolen away by the enemy. Parents hurriedly gather their children and run like there is no tomorrow. For many, there would not be. In bunkers and in shelters on the subway platform, hundreds of Londoners slept tightly side by side. But their spirits are not broken, and they refuse to surrender. They are strengthened by important footsteps that step over the rubble. Come close to them. Speak to them. Touch them. Make plans for them. And reassures them that they'd much rather die a free nation than to live as an enslaved one as we together stand and sing the song of encouragement.